Welcome to the Enrich Your Soul podcast, episode number 131, How to Be Limitless with Laura Gassner Odding. Welcome to the Enrich Your Soul podcast, your source for inspiration, motivation, and positive change. I'm your host, Rich Bracken, and in each episode, I'm here to provide exactly what you need to get you on your path to excellence through insights and amazing interviews with high achievers. Now, let's get started. Welcome, everybody, to the Enrich Your Soul podcast. I, you know, there are not words to express how excited I am for this conversation today. There are so many different ways that I could describe this woman, but there are there are a few that I'm going to capture. But, you know, they are limitless in description. See what I did there? Uh, <laughs> but I am so excited to welcome Laura Gassner Odding, the founder and chief catalyzing officer at Limitless Possibility to the Enrich Your Soul podcast. Laura speaks with change agents, entrepreneurs, investors, leaders, and donors to get them past the doubt and indecision that consign their great ideas to limbo. She delivers strategic thinking, well-honed wisdom, and a catalyst, catalytic, there we go, easy for me to say, perspective, informed by decades of navigating change across the startup, nonprofit, political, and philanthropic landscape. She is an author, leader, TEDx presenter, national media contributor, and my favorite descriptor, Laura is like a punch in the face, wrapped in a warm hug. <laughs> so please help me in welcoming the podcast to the podcast, lightweight champion of the get the hell out of your way world, competitive rower and professional badass, Laura Gastner Odding. Welcome, Laura. How are you today? I'm good. And I have to say that last part of the introduction was not written by me. It was actually written by my dear friend, Judson Lapley, who you may remember uh, decades ago watching the first YouTube sensation, the first YouTube star, the evolution of dance, like a guy in college who like, oh, went yes. through all the dances. That's Judson. And we were doing an event and we were all had to introduce each other. And he got on stage and he introduced me as, you know, a kick in the ass or a, kick, a punch in the face wrapped in a warm hug or a kick in the ass wrapped in a warm hug. I don't remember exactly what it was. Um, and that, I was the lightweight champion of the get your hell out of the, you know, your own way world. And I was like, Oh, that's well, and, good. And sometimes the best that. personal branding comes from others too. So especially yes. with somebody like that, I mean, I'll take that all day long. If somebody ever wants to call me anything remotely close <laughs> to those two, I'll take it all day. I'll take totally. it all day. I was like, that actually captures me much better than all the like super professional ways I was trying to <laughs> describe myself. Trying to be a grown I'm a up. Change agent. I'm a leader. I'm then yeah. no, like I am I am a punch in the face wrapped in a yes. warm hug. No, I have never heard that of anybody else. So there it is. <laughs> it's stuck, it's impactful, and it's memorable. So I am yes. so and I'm so excited to welcome you to the show. And and I the, your story, the book, all like everything about you is so much fun. I've been following your content on social media for a long time now and the consistency and the power with which you show up is infectious. So first, I want to just come out of the gates and say thank you for being that punch in the face wrapped in a warm hug, um, because you deliver both consistently. I really, really appreciate who you are. And I'm excited for those. I mean, from the minute I shared that we were going to talk, you know, I've, I've learned so many people know who you are and people have come out of the woodworks, you know, celebrating this conversation, going out and buying Limitless. Like it's been so much fun to watch that. But for those that aren't in the know, and maybe are probably coming out from underneath their rock. Can you tell them a little bit about who you are and, and a little bit about your journey? Yeah, sure. So I am um, the best way to describe my journey would probably be accidental. So mm -hmm. I was supposed to um, go to law school, run for office, become the first female Democratic senator from the great state of Florida, which, by the way, that job is still available. So get your act together, Florida. <laughs> uh, they, they've elected one Republican senator, female senator, but that's it, just one and never a Democrat. So, you know, we got some work to do. Um, but uh, uh, I, I hated law school. I got to law school and I looked around the very first day and I was like, this is not for me. This is not where I belong. I've made a huge mistake. What do I do? So um, I dropped out and I joined a presidential campaign and that president ended up in the White House. And so I ended up in the White House. So that was not a plan. And then uh, four years into that, we had done what we wanted to do. I went because I fell madly in love with this idea of community service in exchange for college tuition. And we created AmeriCorps. So it was done. And I was ready to get back on the campaign trail again. And my mentor at the time was like, yeah, you're too old now to be a campaign staffer. I was all of 25. So that's like, I was Methuselah, you know, in campaign years. And uh, he's like, and you're too young to be the domestic policy advisor. So you should go talk to my friend, Arnie Miller. And he'll, he runs the biggest search firm uh, in the country that does specifically advocacy nonprofit work. 
you'll go find a job for four years and then come back and do something big on the next campaign for Al Gore. And I was like, great, awesome. And then I sat with him for about five minutes and I realized he worked in Boston and the guy I was dating, who I thought was the one, who, by the way, we've been married for almost 25 years now, uh, was about to move to Boston. So I was like, I should work for you. And he's like, you should come work for me. And I was like, great, I'll take the job. What 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 do you do? And then I became a headhunter, accidental. And then I worked for him for about five years, learning from the best and the brightest how to do this work. And then I had this moment of rage where I realized that the work could be done better and different and with more authenticity and more integrity and more profit um, for us and less cost for the client. And I had that realization that I was not part of my client's solution, which left me in only one place, which is that I was part of the problem. And so I left and I started my own firm. So I became an accidental founder and an accidental CEO. And then I ran that company for 15 years until I sold it to my people, at which time I got asked to do this TEDx. And I said, no way, that's terrifying. I don't want to speak in public. And my sons convinced me we can get all into the details of any of these stories if you want. But I ended up giving my very first talk in front of 2,600 people and I became an accidental speaker. And when I reached the point where I was getting paid like what I considered real money to be on a stage, I looked around and I was like, all these other people have books. I should probably get me one of them. So I became an accidental author. So that's my story and I'm sticking to it. It's pretty much been a story of, um, of, of, of being endlessly curious and, and doing things that were interesting to me, not following my passion, but really investing at each point in my passion and figuring out at each step of the way what I needed to do to show up as the very best version of myself when I was there. Well, and, and I love all of those, and I would love to dive into all of those too, but I, I love the fact that you call it accidental, but at the same time, I feel like the, it's proper timing, proper understanding, and I love the story about how you thought about the staffing agency and how it just wasn't working, and how many times do we hear people get into a company or get into an organization that things aren't working the way they should? They're not truly built around service. They're, they're you know a, a cluster at best but they stay and they don't ask questions. They don't look for improvement, but you, you took that, you took the bull by the horns and, and created this new outlook on things. So why do people sit in that? And why, why aren't they more apt to say, hey, look, this isn't right. This is probably a better way of doing it. Well, I think a lot of things happen. I think we have a lot of self-doubt. We have a lot of insecurity. We have a lot of imposter syndrome. So we're like, we're afraid that if we go in and we tell people this isn't working the way it's supposed to be working, maybe it is. And we're just, we just don't know. Like maybe we're not smart enough or good enough or in the know, right? Maybe we're not in the inner circle. So we don't want to out ourselves as being somebody who's not who doesn't understand the job first and foremost. But then we also, you know, we we are we are told uh, to stay in our lane, right? Like we get hired at some point because we show competence in something Mm -hmm. and then we get paid for it. We get praised for it. We get promoted for it. And so we're afraid to step to the left. We're afraid to step to the right because we're afraid if we do that, we might fail. And once we fail, failure's finale. It's over. It's the end. Like it's embarrassing. It's like we're done. And that's like, I mean, that comes from deep in our, in our evolutionary core, right? Like if you, if you, if you get ostracized from the pack, you are on your own and you get eaten by a line in the Serengeti, right? Like that's just, that is like, we have been trained from, you know, when we were like, we're tadpoles that, that like you have to stick with the pack. So like, we don't want to do something that might get us ostracized. And then it's also this question of like, well, what about everyone else around us? Are we casting doubt on them? Like, well, you're still here doing this thing that I've now decided isn't of value. So like, maybe I don't think you're good enough. So there's like a lot of social dynamics that go into it. But for me, it I, I actually became bad at the job. Hmm. So when I was sitting in this corner office, I was the youngest vice president of this executive search firm. And I was I was sitting with my clients and we did, as I mentioned, exclusively nonprofit work, advocacy work, foundations, the healthcare research, all like the, the good work, right? We were saving the world. We were curing mm-hmm. cancer. We were feeding the poor. We were giving uh, the disenfranchised opportunity. And I thought I was wearing the white hat and I was sitting in this office one day. I remember it so clearly. And I had this beautiful view of the Boston Common out of my gorgeous corner office. And I was looking at my clients, but I was really like, staring past them at the beautiful view. And in my mind, I was counting the money. I was counting my quarterly you know, quarterly nut that I was about to make. And I was like, yes, done. Awesome. And I was thinking about my weekend. And the problem is that 
I thought I was on the same side of the table as my client, curing cancer, feeding the poor, et cetera. But they were on one side of the table and I was on the other. And in between us was this invisible profit and loss statement that my boss had in mind, right? That was what I cared about more. That was literally between me and my clients. And my clients noticed. They noticed that my mind wasn't on their problem that they wanted to find the best talent. My mind was on my problem that I needed to make that quarterly number. And I didn't make the quarterly number because they realized I didn't care. I wasn't putting their, I wasn't putting their problem first. I was putting my problem first. And so I lost trust and I lost their business. And because I literally couldn't do the job anymore, I had to leave. I had to go, like I went into my boss's office and I remember saying, I've been doing a lot of thinking about this. I've been doing a lot of thinking about how we do this work and, 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 and I've put together a plan and here's a better way. And he was like, there's the door. Like you can either stay and do things our way and you're good at the job and we'd love for you to stay. Or if you don't think that this is right for you, you can leave, but you can't do things your way in my business. Right. And I really like, I didn't have a choice. And I think, you know, a lot of times we stay because we're, we, we either don't think we understand, we're afraid to be ostracized, or we, we don't want to upset people. But there is a certain point when it becomes organ rejection, right? Like you just, you cannot be good at the job once you understand that the job is not actually solving the problem. And there are people who are willing to leave and take that chance and take that risk Mm-hmm. And there are people who aren't. And here's the thing that I really learned as an entrepreneur. There, people, there are people who are willing to go work in an entrepreneurial endeavor who aren't themselves entrepreneurs. So I could leave and start it. And once I left and started, other people came with me, but nobody was going to leave on their own because I had a different tolerance for risk than they did. Interesting. I, and I've never heard it put that way, but that's that's a fascinating thought But because and, and, and it, it would actually segues perfectly into the next question that I have, because you have put your toe on that line of decision of, mm-hmm. of change, like big change decision, not just, I'd rather have a taco than a sandwich for lunch. It's, it's, you know, catastrophic or, or major pivotal change. What does that feel like to, to you versus these individuals that don't necessarily feel that? I mean, do you feel the same fear and you just say, you know, the hell with it, I'm going to step into this because this is what I truly believe. Because we all have that panic that, you know, that right before we had that decision, no matter what it is, especially in those big, cha- those big changes that we're thinking, well, what could go wrong here? But how do you, how do you train yourself <laughs> to, to push yeah. past that? So I, I give a lot of talks to entrepreneurship conferences and there's always somebody at some point in the Q and A who is like, excuse me, um, what were you going to do if you failed? And I, say, well, let me ask you this. You're at an entrepreneurship conference. You're a self-identified entrepreneur. You are starting a business, right? And they're like, yeah, uh uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And I'm like, what are you going to do if you fail? And they always have an answer. They always have an answer. And the answer is usually like, I've got six months of savings, or my wife has a job that, you know, gives us stability, or I'll go get a job in a cubicle till I come up with the next plan or like what they always have a plan B. So then I'm like, okay, great. What are you going to do if you succeed? And I have asked that question probably 50 to 70 times and no one's ever had an answer. Crickets. Because what happens is we worry so much about the failure. Oh my God, what if I fail? That we forget to focus on the, what will I do if I succeed? And I think there's two different kinds of people. I think that there's kinds of people who say, I'm going to focus on what will happen if I fail and be trapped in that prison of anxiety and stress. And then there are people who say, but if this succeeds, think about all the opportunities and options and doors that will open for me. So what I say to people is this, think about what you'll do if you fail, because you probably will, right? Like failure is not finale, it's fulcrum. It's where we learn and we grow and we iterate and we innovate and we change. Failure is part of the process and it's a good part of the process. It gets you better. Failure is not a possibility, it's a probability. So think about what you'll do if you fail, absolutely. And if you need to, write out a 10-point plan for it and then stick that sucker in a drawer because you already know what you're going to do. You don't need to spend any more time thinking about it. So what should you be doing? You should be focusing on what you're going to do if you succeed. And the more time you spend thinking about it, it'll open up this opportunity and that option and that door will focus your mind and your attention and your networking and your knowledge attainment and your skills growth and all of those things on what you're going to need to get to that place. Because you know, like what you pay attention to is what grows. 
So why would you pay more attention to the failure? You know what's going to happen. You know what's possible. So like plan for it. Know that you have a safety net. Know the backpack is packed with the parachute. Mm-hmm. And then jump out of the plane because you know what you're going to do. I'm I'm jotting down the time code on this because I'm going to clip that last answer and listen to it every single morning as I get up. That, <laughs> I'm just sitting here going, oh, it's just hitting me like a wave. I mean, the, the that is those words of wisdom are so powerful because I myself and I know scores of others, probably everybody listening to this, have had that mentality of, well, if this goes wrong, what am I going to do? But right. they don't ever think that that question alone is completely like, like my mind now is going in this other direction, which I'm going to let it go that way because at the end of this conversation, I'm going to go back and revisit it. But it's so, I, I've never heard anybody say it that way. I mean, look, if, 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 if I fail, if this goes wrong, if the bottom falls out, what am I going to do? If you don't have an answer to that question, then don't leap out of the plane yet. By all means, you got to figure out the answer to that question because the, the, the energy that it takes to deal with the everyday existential crisis of, oh my God, what if this fails? Mm. It saps away the energy that is the part of the joy of why you want to do the thing in the first place. Mm-hmm. So like figure that out. Like that that is just a math problem, right? Like there's a certain amount of money that you need to have to make sure that you're paying your rent or your mortgage. You've got food on the table. You're paying whatever bills you need to pay. Like there, that is a math problem. There is a number. There is a number and you probably need six months of that number. So you figure that out. You figure out where it's going to come from. You figure out how to save it. You figure out what the plan is to go back and get it quickly. But Mm -hmm. once you've solved the math problem, there's not much else to do at the end of the math test than turn in the paper, right? Right. You've solved the problem. Now you got other problems. You got to go solve those problems because the problems that you want to solve, the reason that you want to start the thing you want to start, the reason that you want to do the thing you want to do is something that's inside you. It's this like deep and burning thing that's inside of you. That's what separates the entrepreneurs from the people who just want to work in an entrepreneurial endeavor. The ones who want to work in an entrepreneurial endeavor, they enjoy the like all hands on deck and every day is an adventure, but they are not interested in the risk of, oh my God, what if the bottom falls out? Right. I, That's the uh, difference. I, I I I love love every piece of that, every single <laughs> bit of it, because I think too, what we and I and I just spoke with a friend of mine yesterday about this concept about we typically get pessimistic when we think about our goals or when we think about the things that we want to achieve or when we dive into what we think is our purpose, and we get pessimistic. We go to that side of what if negative, and we forget that there is passion and playfulness in that purpose. You know, yes. we, when we think about the things that we're truly, that we truly care about, the things that we truly want to achieve and, and what we want to leave behind as a legacy, it's built in that playfulness. And I think that is something that we forget to bring along with us because then yes. we go into this objective, you know, Eeyore-ish glass half empty, you know, all of the, all of the negative thoughts. And so we forget yes. to be playful and energetic about what we truly believe in. Yeah, absolutely. And I know we're here to talk about Limitless, but I have to tell you, I, I'm so I just turned in the first draft of my next book. And in one of the chapters of my next book is about this idea of, is about luck. And, you know, you were talking about, you know, that we get trapped in this negative space and we forget to look at the light and the joy and the fun and the energy. So we think that some people, it's like, look, oh, they're just so successful. Everything they do turns to gold. They're just, they're just, they're light and they're fun and everything works. So it turns out, that's not true. It turns out the science behind it is that you can actually make your own luck. People who are more optimistic, people who are uh, are more interested in taking risks, people who are more extroverted, people who actually go out and put themselves in play get luckier mm-hmm. because they just happen to be there. So like if you and I are um, like, I'm, I'm, I'm active on social media, I'm putting myself out there, you and I meet and it's like, hey, here's somebody, we jive, we jail, everything's good. You invite me onto your podcast, somebody's gonna hear this, they're gonna buy a book, I'm gonna be more successful. Suddenly I'm luckier, but I'm luckier because I did the things that make me luckier. And do you think given that fact, and, and, and I do, I wanna pivot to, to Limitless here shortly, but do you think if somebody reframed the mentality of you have to be lucky to be successful versus you have to play the law of averages. Mm-hmm. So it's because I think I do, I think some people think, well, they were, they were, they lucked into this or they were given this opportunity or they, you know, the, it's this singular, very narrow hallway to what the goal or what the dream or what the success is. 
And really, it's this broad field of things. And I, I yeah. love and I completely agree with what you said. The more you put yourself out there, the more likely the people that you need to have find you will find you or yes. the people you need to connect with will connect with you. But if you just sit in front of your computer and stare at Twitter all day long and think, oh, God, I wish I was successful like them. Yeah. I mean, there for every success that you see, there's probably 50 to 100 failures, big and small, that go along with that. But you're just yes, seeing yes. the one. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's a couple things. I think the first, I just want to make sure that anyone listening doesn't think, oh God, well, I'm not extroverted. So I can't be lucky. I'm a raging introvert. Like I literally do not answer my phone because it just feels too intrusive. And I don't even listen to voicemail. The outgoing message on my voicemail is, hi, thanks for calling. I'd love to tell you that I'm going to listen to this voicemail, but I'm not. So please follow up with a text. And I, I do a lot of political fundraising, I have congressmen and senators who will say like, they'll literally text me, I heard your voicemail and I'm texting you now. So like, if they can do it, anybody can do it. Like I'm such a raging introvert and I make my living doing these extroverted things, but it means I just learn how to play that role during the times I need to. So I just want to like shout out to all my fellow introverts that you can be lucky too. You just like, you just act the part and, and, and you act the part for as you need to act the part. I'm not saying fake it till you make it. I'm saying you play that role as you need to, to, you know, catch the fish you need. That's number one. The second is to go to this idea of law of averages. If, if Rich, if you told me that you failed half the times you put something out there, you'd be like, yeah, I'm failing half the time. It's terrible. I'd be like, Mm -hmm. that is a hall of fame average. Like you're batting 500. That's amazing. And if you look at all of the people who have done these big things, who are prolific, they will tell you, like, I get up every day and I write 500 words, or I get up every day and I make, you know, 10 sales calls or like whatever the thing is, because you don't know what's the one that's going to work, Hmm. right? You just don't know. And there are a lot of times where, I mean, there is a blog post that I wrote literally in 10 minutes in the back of a cab in New York City that has been seen over 150,000 times on LinkedIn. There are other blog posts that I have spent months working on that got like two views. Like you just, you don't know what's going to catch attention and what's not. And the only way to figure it out is to just keep producing, to keep publishing, to keep putting things out there. And the truth is that my, my favorite quote from Eleanor Roosevelt, just kind of like picking your favorite child, because there's so many of them is this one. You would, you would worry much less about what other people thought about you if you realized how seldomly they did. Mm-hmm. Right? I'll say that again. You would worry much less about what other people thought about you if you realized how seldomly they did. Everyone else is so worried about you looking at their failure that they're not worrying about your they're, they're not even paying attention. And the only thing that breaks through, the only thing that they actually see is your success. Right. Right. I I'm adding that to my my list of favorite children too because yeah. that is because I think that too we we often give too much mental real estate to the to the what ifs and yeah. the things that we're curating in our minds that haven't even happened yet and that to your Just point it's, keep it sucks the energy. going yes so um I do want to yeah, pivot the, to, I the, the best the best way I I gave a talk once and I totally messed up a line and it was one of those like oh I can't believe I messed up right <laughs> and I I saw a friend of mine who was another speaker and I was like dude and I'd only been speaking for like six months at this point right. I was like dude how long does that sit with you how long does it like live in your mind how long does it take up real estate and he said until you give the next talk right like just keep going right. Yeah. And, and again, we, 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 we put too much gravity on those things and we we don't, and of course, when we put yourself out there, you don't want to make those mistakes and you think that that's going to live forever. And then people are going to say, well, yeah, she's got this great book, but do you remember the time she flubbed that line in that presentation (laughs) that we all saw and that we all poked fun at? Like they're, except they didn't, except they didn't because nobody even knows what you meant to say. That's the thing. Like people, most of the time we mess up, nobody even realizes it is, nobody even realizes it's a mistake because they don't even know what was supposed to happen. Exactly. Exactly. I, and so many, like I'm, Again, I'm gonna I'm gonna go back. I'm gonna listen to this conversation every single morning because everything <laughs> that you're saying is like yes to this, yes to this. Um, but I do want to pivot to the book. I am sure. I am a massive fan, and I see the I see the yellow in your background, but I'm gonna hold it up here yes. because I am. Ugh, this is the the gem that this book is 
is such a blessing to anyone because I, you know, I like to think that I've got all my stuff together for the most part on a consistent basis. I know that I've got my faults and I know that I've got a good drive. But when I started reading this book, it was like somebody, it was like you were standing beside me with, and you saw the wick coming out the side of me and you went, yeah, you think so? Watch this. And, and you said it. And, and all of a sudden, like everything that I had been wanting to accomplish went in this, this high speed trajectory mentally. I'm like, oh yeah, I'm not doing this and I need to do this. And, and it, everything became very clear. So number one, I want to thank you for putting yourself out there to do this and to write this book because it is phenomenal. And I, you know, I, I have you. plenty of books and I, I need to reorganize my office. So my, my bookcases are, are visible and beautiful like yours, but you know, I've got lots of books that I've been very passionate about. And then I would recommend to others. This is one that I think everybody, and I've said it numerous times since we've agreed to talk that they, it, it's a must buy. It's a must read. Um, but let me, let me ask you this. When you talk about getting out of your own way, and you talk about these things, because I think a lot of people have the goals and I hear, you know, on social media, I think, especially in the last 18 months, we're like, well, we're not doing anything else. I might as well write a book. And maybe it's just the circles that people that I follow, but everybody's talking about writing a book. And it's scary because you're putting your words, your beliefs, your vulnerabilities on paper or in an audiobook in its permanent record. So what does that take? What did that take for you? Because you've now done it twice and you're now onto the third. So what does that take? What did that take for you to say, you know what, I'm going to do this? Oh, boy. <laughs> so as I mentioned, I became an accidental speaker and I was, uh, first of all, first of all, thank you for those mm -hmm. kind words. Um, that's like, I, I, I will tell you, it is, um, it is lovely and difficult to listen to somebody praise something that you created. <laughs> it is, and 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 it, the book's been out um, for a while now, and it 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 never gets easier, but it also never gets old. So, thank you, I appreciate that. Um, uh, so what? So so I became this accidental speaker, and then when I was starting to get paid more money, like real money, I I realized that everybody else who was getting paid this level of money or the next level of money I wanted to be paid all had books, and not just like manuals, but like big idea books, hardback books. Mm -hmm. And I, um, I had 10 years earlier had written a book about transitioning from corporate to nonprofit work. And so I had a book for those who needed me to have a book, but I also had a lot of brand confusion because I don't speak about nonprofit work anymore. That's just not part of what I do. Right. I can talk about doing work that is important to you, but it's not like specifically nonprofit related. So it, it, I, in the, best set of circumstances, I didn't have a big idea book. In the worst set of circumstances, I had brand confusion about who I really was. Like I wasn't the nonprofit girl. So I realized I need to, to write it. And I, um, I called it a publisher uh, of a hybrid publishing house. And I was like, look, I need to write a book. I want to write a book about this thing. And he's like, yeah, cool. We'd love for you to write that book, but we're also doing this guidebook series. And we'd love for you to write a guidebook first that goes in the series and then you can write, you know, your big book. And I kind of thought like, this is the way in, I guess this is what I'll do. And it was a book about doing work that matters. So I start writing this book. It's kind of a guidebook form. And the thing I want to write and my energy is not very guidebook like, so, you know, a guidebook is chapter one, problem, solution, chapter two, problem, solution, right. chapter three, problem, solution, chapter four, fall asleep, right? Like it's just not <laughs> super interesting. And I'm writing this book about like purpose and doing work that matters and like figuring out who you are and leaving it all on the table. And that's not a guidebook form. So I'm like butting heads with this editor from the very start. So after six weeks of it, I call the publisher and I'm like, listen, I'm not your girl. This is not mm -hmm. my book. I, you should fire me. And he says, you're right. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> I thought he was going to fight me on it or something. Not quite how I thought that was going to go. but. <laughs> and then he says, but you know what? Your big idea is in here and you need to write a big idea about this. And we want to do it in hardback in the spring when big idea books come out. And I went, wait, what? <laughs> so I called my friend Clay A. Bear, who was one of the smartest people I know about like marketing about books. And I was like, oh my God, what the hell am I going to do? Right. And, uh, you know, I'm going to now write this book, Purpose, Doing Work That Matters. And he was like, well, first of all, no, that's a terrible title. He said, what do you want people to feel like when they finished reading this book? And I said, I'm just so sick of everybody being told what they can do and who they can be and what's like they're allowed to do. And I'm so sick of them being told what they can't do and having success defined by everybody 
everybody else around them and just, I'm, I'm so sick of it. And I want them just to stop listening to all those people and go out and live their own damn life ready and just be happy. And he says, so you want them to be limitless, ignore everybody, carve their own path and live their best life. And I was like, <laughs> knew I called you for a reason. <laughs> I'm like, Clay, I love you. We don't talk nearly enough, but I need to hang up the phone right the hell now and go write that book. And literally within six weeks, poured out of me. Wow. So, you know, how do people feel? It's, I think it depends on why they're writing it and what it means to them. And for me, this was like everything I'd learned in 20 years of doing executive search about what makes people successful, but then not happy. And then what actually can make them successful and happy kind of poured out of me in this way that was like a screed. Almost. Yeah. I'm, I mean, you could, I'm, I am, I am, I write in fairly final form because I, I spend, I spent 20 years thinking about this idea. So by the time it came out of me, it came out of me. And now in writing this next book, it is a very different process because I'm kind of like packing all these like stories and in, interviews and, and, and ideas and tactics into it. And then I have to like put the through line in after. So it's very different. It's like less emotional, but it's still, um, it's, it is, it is still putting yourself out there and then having the world reply. And there were, I got a lot of really great reviews, four-star, five-star reviews. I don't remember what any of them say. Except one I just got last week with a guy who said he listened to the audio, the audible version of it. And he said he got a PR on his run because he was so fired up. <laughs> and he got a PR on his run. He's like, I just kept running like Forrest Gump. Um, but I can tell you word for word what the one star and the two star reviews said. Interesting. It's, it's just, a, it's such a personal thing. Right, right. So, well, and I, after this conversation is over, I'm going to go give you another five-star review <laughs> and I will, I will email you what it actually says so you can read it. So you don't miss it by any chance, but any, like, I, I think that's the one thing I love about it. And especially in talking with you is that it is very conversational and it is very emotional and it is, I mean, it's a page turner. I know that that's a, such a cliche term for books, but you just don't want to stop. And it's just, it, it's so engaging and there's so many amazing, like this conversation, so many amazing gems of, of realization. And even their story about the guidebook, because I, I am legit, not even blowing smoke here, in that same position where I've been contemplating writing a book, but it's been that guidebook. That's not yeah. me. Yeah. And even when I said the other day that I would rather record the audio and transcribe it into the book because I talk better than I write. I talk yes. a lot so that, you know, I, I could do war and peace in like a day, um, <laughs> but it really is all about the emotion of things. Yes. And yes. it's not, don't do it just to just say you did it because it's not who you truly are. Yes. And so I, I applaud you for, for, for doing what you did to say, Hey, look, not me, not the thing, not my time. This is not the right fit. Like, never mind. That's yes. brave. I mean, that's, that's brave to step back and say that because that's accepting not only the, the, the failure of not getting it done, but the acceptance of who you truly are. Yeah. I mean, I think, look, I mean, you know, you, you've, you got on stages and you speak for a living, you tell people to do things to change their lives. And a lot of them do. Hmm. And I think so many of our fellow speakers are so consumed with the, like, how do I get the slide right? And how do I get the bit down? And how do I make the right joke? And I'm like, screw that. Right. What are you talking about? What are hmm. you saying? And is it real? And is it true? And is it important? And are you getting it right? And once you've got that, then you can worry about the bit and the slide and the joke and all the, the, the icing on the cake. But like, you got to get the batter right. And I just, I, I have people who come up to me. And they'll say things like, oh my God, I read the first half of your book and I quit my job. And I want to be like, read the second half. <laughs> um, because maybe you should still quit your job. But like, just right. like, I just, I feel this enormous amount of pressure to mm -hmm. get it right because people are going to do things after reading it. The number of people who have left marriages or started businesses, or I had a woman who told me she lost a hundred pounds. I mean, it's, just, it is, it is amazing to me. Like I, I, I'll tell you a funny story. I, I thought I wrote a business book. Cause I was like, I've done executive search for 20 years. I'm in the careers business. Like I'm talking to people about their careers. Mm -hmm. And then the book came out in April. I got a call three months earlier in January from the today show. And they were like, hey, we saw your press release. Amy Cuddy blurbed your book. We love Amy. So we decided to check it out. We think your book is great. We'd love to have you on. Uh, the nine o'clock hour with Hoda and Jenna Bush. And I was, and it was like, I was like, 
okay. And they're like, and the nine o'clock hour is really like the stay at home mom hour. So we really want to talk about this idea of like being stuck and comparing yourself to other people. And how do you get out of a rut? It's going to be like a transformation Tuesday thing. And I hung up the phone and I called my publicist and I was like, I don't understand. I wrote a business book. Why am I talking to stay at home moms? And she was like, because the Today Show is asking me. <laughs> 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 and so the very first interview I ever give for the book and my very first interview ever on television is the Today Show. <laughs> it's completely that was ridiculous. your first interview ever on TV? First interview ever. And I was you know, it's terrifying, of course. And like, I get on and Jenna Bush like says my name wrong. And I'm just like giving the like first lady smile, like, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. it's great to be here. Right. I mean, just whatever it is, what's live national TV, it is what it is. And then I started to talk to people and I was getting reaction to people. And what I realized was, wow, I didn't write a business book. I wrote a book that you can use in business, mm-hmm. but actually all business books are kind of self-help books. And I had this like snotty, feeling like self-help, self-help, that's garbage. And then what I realized was that self-help is actually really hard. Like I bring the help, but people have to bring the self. And when you bring the self, you bring it in a way that is vulnerable and is open and is scared. And the way that people bring themselves to this book, to the, the things that I talk about, to the things that you talk about, the transformations that they're willing to have, that is so important. And you know, I was having a conversation with Jordan Harbinger, who's, you know, Jordan Harbinger show. Mm. And, and we were talking about how all of self-help is terrible. And, and he was like, except for some, and he actually wrote a blurb for the paperback when it came out a year later, that when something like in a sea of self-help, soul-sucking garbage, finally a book that doesn't make you feel worse about yourself when you finish than before you began. But I think that's it, right? Like most of the self-help talks and the self-help books and the self-help courses, like they make you feel bad about yourself so that you keep buying the next book and the next talk and the next course. So I think the the reason why the book is written in a way that's like a page turner is that I am like, I, I am like urgently trying to help you find a solution mm-hmm. because I just, I, I'm not here to help you buy the next book. I'm here to help you get to the next place you want to get to, because that's, that's my actual job. Right. And, and it, that, it, that comes through so true in this. And of course, when you're, when you were talking, first of all, I have to say you have the best blurbs, um, <laughs> credentials, descriptions, branding. I it, it, like, it, it, I'll put you up against anybody at this point. Like that's fantastic. <laughs> but when you talked about- That is a horrible experience, by the way. When you talk <laughs> about the writing the book itself isn't bad. Asking for blurbs is the most rejection-filled self-doubt process you will ever experience in your life. Like I've talked to authors that have had, you know, like multiple New York Times bestsellers and they're still like, I don't want it. It's horrible. I don't want to have to ask. (laughs) You send something out and then it's, can I tell you one more story about blurbs? Of course. Okay. So I send, um, I send this book to Carrie Lorenz, who I know you also mm-hmm. love. She's yep. one of your, right. So for people who are listening, Carrie Lorenz is the first female F-14 fighter pilot in the U S Navy. She stands six foot tall, beautiful head of like wavy brown hair, gets on stage and like full leather head to toe boots, the dress, the whole thing. And she gets up there and behind her on the screen is this like rumble, 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 like thunder of a plane landing on a, you know, flight deck of a, of a tiny, you know, aircraft carry that's bobbing in 30 foot seas. And it's like, welcome to my office. You're like, okay, <laughs> she's a badass. In addition to that, she also won the head of the Charles as a rower when she was a D1 athlete in college. I'm a, you know, competitive rower. So like, girl crush all over the place. So I call her up one day. I don't really know her that well at the time. We're now very good friends, but I don't know her that well at the time. And I'm like, Carrie, you're such a badass. I have such a huge girl crush on you. Would you ever maybe consider thinking about possibly even maybe one day blurbing my book? And she says, yeah, awesome. Send it to me. So I send her my book. Three days go by. I get a text from her. Hey, can we talk about your book for a second? And Rich, I'm expecting praise because I'm an idiot. (laughs) (laughs) And she calls me up and she says, and these are the 45 minutes after soundcheck before she's going on stage. So, you know, as a speaker, these are like, that's like when you get your game face on. She calls me up and she's like, and this is a direct quote. Can I curse? Because there's a lot of curse words in this. Okay. It just doesn't have the same effect if you don't curse. And she calls me up and she's like, Laura, listen, you're really fucking smart. And this book is really fucking good but you're too fucking smart for this book just to be really fucking good. 
you need to make it really fucking great and then I'll blurb the shit out of it. Here is your ass. This <laughs> is possible. And then she spends those next 40 minutes helping me understand exactly. I was like, I know I got it like 98% of the way there. And I just, I just couldn't get it over the hump and I don't know what's wrong. And she spent those 40 minutes helping me figure out exactly what it was. And then introducing me to her editor who then wow. helped me make it really fucking great. That's amazing. Well, right? first of all, there's a blurb story no 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 no. that's i love that story number one because i i know like i i i've followed carrie as well and i mean she lives right down the road here in minneapolis so if you're ever in minneapolis drinks on me for the two of you um number two i will i will hesitate sending my book to carrie and until i am mentally ready um for a a verbal ass kicking i noted um verbal ass kicking but also like a hand holding i mean talk about a kick in the ass wrapped in a warm hug that was that's right well, and too, and, and, and to know anybody, like you said, I mean, that that core time in between soundcheck and, and delivery is is mental prep time. So for yes. her to take her time to do that and give you that kind of feedback, number one, she didn't have to do that or give you any feedback at all, frankly, but especially in that prime time, that's huge. I mean, that's huge. massive. Huge. I mean, it speaks to her character. And I mean, she's just an, an absolutely incredible human and has a new book coming out uh, that mm-hmm. that is I've actually got uh, got an early copy of and it is incredible. So I'm very excited. You didn't, for you didn't return the favor on the blurb feedback. I actually, actually, it's very <laughs> funny because she sent me a very early copy. She didn't ask me to blurb it because she has people like, um, like, uh, like, like, uh, uh, you know, major four star generals, retired four star generals. She's she got, she got, she got people. <laughs> she's, got, she's, got, um, she's got a good one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, she got like Stanley McChrystal and Alan Mulally are blurbing her book. She's, she's doing good. Um, <laughs> but, but she sent me a very early copy and she's like, look, give me feedback. So I was like, okay do you want feedback or do you want praise? Cause most people who ask for feedback, right. Want right, praise. Right. So she's like, no, I really want feedback. So I literally went through like chapter by chapter, paragraph by paragraph. Like, this is good. This is good. This you're not finishing the idea here. Like the whole thing. And she, and, and I, and before I sent it to her, I texted her, I'm like, are you sure you want feedback? <laughs> she was like, <laughs> yes. So I sent it to her and like, an hour goes by, two hours go by, and I'm like, oh my God, I've totally ruined my friendship with Carrie. Oh my Looking God, I'm offended like, her. Is she showing up like, just like, oh, she's going to give me a flyover. <laughs> like, what's going to happen? And she calls me up and she's like, you just gave me better feedback than any of the editors, than any of the publishers, and anybody who has ever looked at this book has given me. I can't thank you enough. So I was like, oh, thank God. But I got to return the favorite. I think that's what people do, right? Like you find people who, I call them your family like mm-hmm. the combination of your friends and family that are like, we all have family members who quote unquote want to be supportive, sure. but they don't necessarily know how you may be walking a path that they've never even known existed. So like, how can they help you figure out where to go? Or maybe they don't approve of your decisions. Like there's all kinds of reasons why, or they just don't know you, right? Like the last time I lived in the same house as my parents, I was 17 and I was leaving dirty socks in the living room. When I tell them I'm going to like sell my business and start a new career, they're like, are you sure you can do that? It's like, I'm not leaving dirty socks in the living room anymore. I'm 50 now. Like, it's okay. Like I, I know how to drive. Like right. <laughs> I've grown. So I think having the right people in your corner, the right people in your sidecar, the right people who are ahead of you on the path, next to you on the path, behind you on the path. I think they help you be a better version of yourself. Agreed. And it, and I, I love that, that concept of the honest feedback is, yeah. is so key because uh, I heard once that you should always have somebody that is going to give you dishonest feedback or somebody who's who's fake, who's going to tell you something that probably normally you would want to hear. But then you add that with two other people, three other people that you know are going to just give you the, the carry treatment um, yeah. and just be very direct and because they care and they want you to succeed and they want yes. you to be better and it, by telling you, oh, no, it's great. Like if that would have been what was delivered, it wouldn't have put it in the condition that yeah. it is. And it's excellent. Yes. Yeah. And I think here's the thing. If she didn't think I was capable of it, she would have been like, great job, cupcake. Right. Right. On to the next thing. Yeah. Right. So like the fact when somebody gives you constructive feedback it's because they love you it's because they know you're capable of it you know she tells this great story about how when a man or woman goes down on the field you don't you don't leave them behind like you go back for them and there's like a saying in the military that's like you better be worth the trip and she was basically saying to me the book's not worth the trip yet 
You got to make it worth, like you are capable of making it worth the trip, make it worth the trip. And I think that that's, that's really what we owe to each other. I mean, there are plenty of people in my life that when they ask me what I think about something, I'm like, oh, it's great. Cause I know it's great for them. Mm-hmm. And then there are other people in my life where I'm like, yeah, you mailed that in. Right. And that's not good enough. You can like, you're better than that. When my kids um, would come home from school. Uh, like my kids went to a Montessori school all the way through sixth grade. So they started getting real grades when they were in middle school and they would come home um, with a grade. And if the grade was an A, a B, a C, an F, whatever it was, I'd ask them to, I, they'd say, is that a good grade? And I never said it's a good grade or a bad grade, even though everything inside of me was like, you got to see, that's a terrible grade. <laughs> and say it. What I would say is I'd ask two questions. Do you think the grade reflects your preparation? And do you think the grade reflects your intellect? And usually the answer was, it definitely doesn't reflect my intellect. And well, it probably doesn't reflect my preparation either. So they knew what they needed to do. And it wasn't me casting judgment on them and telling them something that was definitional to them. You are a math person. You're not an English person. Like whatever the things are we all learned growing up, which were nonsense. But it helped them understand that it, it, they had agency and ball was in their court. They had to decide whether or not they wanted to rise to the level of potential that they had or wallow, you know, wallow in this mediocrity that was very comfortable, but not that satisfying. Right. No, it's in, and I, I'm so thankful for these stories because it helps reset my own definition and everybody listening's definition of what success really looks like. Success yes. isn't just it's not going to be the easiest thing. You know, we always talk about the participation award generation and everybody's, <laughs> yeah. everybody's patted on the back and, and successful, but there's that part of me that, you know, I almost want to send Carrie my first book because I want that kind of genuine, honest feedback. I, first of all, I want to know that it's worth the trip. And if it's worth yes. the trip, then box number one, and then right. brace myself for, for what, what, what to endure <laughs> next. Right. Right. Um, right. But I, I appreciate how you take the, the clarity of feedback and how you take what success truly should look like, because we, we often get so caught up in the imagery of social media, the imagery of success. And we, we think that it should be, well, if they did it, I should just be able to do it. Right. This should be this easy path, but there's not this buy-in to the purpose. And, you know, and I want to touch on one more question around limitless. There was this term that you use in there called consonants. Mm. And, and I will also say there were times that I was like, okay, pause, Dictionary. Okay, good. Um, so thank you for in- increasing my vocabulary, which I appreciate that. Um, but you talk about consonants. And to me, that resonated so much. So can you briefly talk about what that concept is and why it's so critical? Yeah, yeah. So um, the book was originally going to be called, after it was no longer purpose doing work that matters, it was going to be called Consonants doing work that matters. And that was when Clay was like, nobody's going to buy a book. They don't know what the word on the front cover means. And Carrie actually said, you need to help people level up their thinking without making them level up their reading. And I was like, oh yeah, that's, that's, that's one to grow on right there. Right. So consonants is actually a word that you do know, even though you don't think you know, because you know dissonance, right? right? You know, noise, cacophony, mayhem, organ rejection, failure. Like it's like, it just doesn't, things aren't working, right? Everything mm-hmm. feels like a struggle. So consonance is the opposite. It's alignment, it's flow, it's harmony. Rich, you know, those moments where the very best of what you do, what you love to do mm-hmm. is being called upon to solve a problem that actually matters to you. Mm-hmm. And you're being rewarded for solving that problem in some way that is emotionally, financially, karmically interesting to you, right? You're sol- you're doing the thing you love, solving a problem that matters and being rewarded for a way that you actually, that actually inspires you. Mm-hmm. Those are the moments when what you do matches who you are. Right. And those are the moments when you're in consonance. Yeah. And I, I think I, I know exactly because I'm <laughs> thinking about recently some experiences that I felt that. And I think every time I speak, every time I coach somebody, every time I'm putting out a piece of content that somebody's coming back and saying, I needed to hear that, that fulfills what I'm trying to do. Because I've always, like my grandfather told me to always leave people better than you found them. And yes. So that's, that's my mission. Yes. Yeah, bottom line. Yes. Yes. Um, and so that in of itself is so valuable. And so whenever people pick this book up, because they're going to pick this book up, when you start reading it and you grasp onto this concept of consonants and you apply it to your own life, I mean, it's almost like somebody flipped the lights on to me. And again, these are things, and again, like I'm not trying to say I'm a martyr of positivity, but at the same time, like I felt like I really understood my purpose and my drive and where things were going. But this book completely said, okay, you do here, but it's really out here. So let's talk about what else is there. 
And while it's broadening the understanding, it's also narrowing the focus and where it really needs the, the, the energy and the power and, the, and everything that I need to put into it is right here, even though there's a broader applicability to what I'm trying to do. Yeah, look, I think, you know, we've talked about, we've, we've, we've said this word purpose a number of times, and I, I, I think we should, we should call out calling, right? Like we should talk a little bit about that because I think the consonants is made up of four things, calling, connection, contribution, and control. So just very quickly, calling is that gravitational force. It's the pull. It's the thing that gets you out of bed in the morning. It's a business you want to build. It's a bottom line you want to grow. It's a leader who inspires you. It's a, it's a, it's a cause that you want to serve. It's a family you want to nurture, right? Mm -hmm. Then there's connection. Does the work you're doing on a daily basis, what's in your inbox, your to-do list, your calendar actually get you closer to serving that calling? Or is it taking you further away from serving that calling? Contribution. Connection's about the work, but contribution's really about you. So how does this work contribute to the life you want to live, the lifestyle you want to have, the the career trajectory you're looking to build, the way you want to manifest your values on a daily basis? And then control is control, right? How much personal agency do you have over the projects you're on, the money you can make, the work you're doing, the values of your company? How much control do you have about how much that work connects to your calling and how much it contributes to your life? But calling is the first one and we get it wrong because we think that calling has to be, you know, purpose, higher purpose, lofty purpose, and purpose is only purpose if it's service and service is only service if it's sacrifice. Like if you're not literally taking the shirt off your back and giving it to a poor kid in need, you're just a sellout and you're pushing paper. And that's nonsense. Like I say to people all the time, if your purpose is curing cancer, awesome. If your purpose is doing the work you're doing because you want to have financial stability so that your family can make different decisions than you were able to make, they have different choices than you want to make, awesome. But if your purpose is like buying a Maserati in a beach house, that's awesome too. Like it's your purpose. Your purpose is like literally the definition of purpose is the reason for which something is done. So if the reason for which you are doing the work you are doing, it's because you want to buy a Maserati in a beach house. It's still your purpose. And we have to stop giving votes in our lives to people who shouldn't even have voices because we all have a purpose. We all have lots of different purposes and we don't just have this one calling for our lives we actually have several, like every five to seven years or so, your life is going to change. You're going to evolve. The world's going to change and your purpose will change. And that's okay. It doesn't always have to be like white hats and selfless work. You can have a calling. You can have a purpose. As long as your purpose is the thing that actually gets you out of bed in the morning, like that's totally cool. Right. And I, and I'm so thankful that my purpose is helping people and improving people because I drove a Maserati once and it scared the hell out of me. And I was so nervous. So I will, I will yeah. never own, I don't care how much money I make. I'll never own one because yeah. I'd, I'd be way too nervous driving. But I mean, I, I see people, I see people all the time. Look, I spent 20 years helping people find work in nonprofit organizations. So I feel like an unimpeachable source on this statement that mm-hmm. you can do good and also do well. It's right. allowed. You can do both. I ran a nonprofit search firm. Like we worked for nonprofit organizations, but we were a for-profit firm. Mm -hmm. We could have made more money if we did search for Coca-Cola or Hilton hotel chains, but we made enough money. There's a difference between the, like, what do you need to make and what do you want to make? And the Delta between the two is the kind of life that you want to live. So like you can do all the things you want to do. You can have a purpose. It doesn't always have to be higher and lofty. Like, unless you're like abusing children or, you know, beating puppies, like Mm -hmm. your purpose is your purpose. And that's, totally great. I totally agree. So before I let you go, I want to get into the rapid fire section, which is Ah, a little bit of fun. Um, Again, like I told you earlier, it's kind of like family feud, but there's no wrong answers here. So I'm going to throw some random questions just to have some fun and get to know more about you. Uh, So if you're ready, there's no timer. I tried to give long answers so we'd run out of time for this, but I guess (laughs) guess here we are. Honestly, like (laughs) I can't wait to go back and listen to this conversation because everything you've been saying has been so impactful to me. And I cannot wait for people to listen to this because along with the book, like this conversation has been so dynamic and so impactful. And I'm so grateful to you to this, for this time, this, this insight, this, the laughs, everything, all the stories, everything has been perfect. So thank you so much for, for doing this. And now I want to find out some, some lore thing. I want to find out what really what's behind the books and all the fun stuff. And there's some really interesting things here. So question number one, you're having a treat yourself night. What are you drinking and eating? Oh, um, my favorite cocktail is a cocktail called the penicillin. It's one of those old cocktails and it, um, uh, you know, prohibition era type 
idea, but it was created in the last like 10 years or so um, by Death and Company New York. And it's a, uh, it is, it is a peaty uh, scotch that's rolled in a glass. And then it's a single malt scotch with some honey and a little uh, lemon and some ginger syrup. And it is the most perfectly balanced cocktail you ever have. So I will have that. And um, I like, you know, like raw bar, like oysters, shrimp, all It's just like, it's just, it's good. It's a ton of protein. Cause you know, I'm an athlete and, right. um, and I, yeah, it's, it's light. It feels good. And it's just, it's just feels like a treat. I, I'm going to, I'm definitely trying one of those tonight. Cause it sounds <laughs> fantastic. Um, favorite band or singer. Oh gosh. Um, that's, uh, that is so hard to answer. Um, this is kind of a weird answer, but I'm going to say Willie Nelson. Interesting. <laughs> I bet you didn't expect that. <laughs> I did not. I, I don't know if I expected anything, but Willie Nelson definitely wasn't on the short list. Yeah. My, 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 my Jewish doctor father um, from Brooklyn who like grew up poor and with, um, with, with, he would like shared a pullout sofa with his brother until the day he moved down and married my mom, right. Brighton beach, Brooklyn. Um, he used to go down to the, to, to the, the Harbor and he would watch all these big fancy boats come in and, you know, drive around yacht around, whatever the, um, the statue of Liberty. And he said, one day I'm going to do that. And he, 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 he made it, he made his money. He bought a boat, took it all the way up. Like, and we would always, he would always play Willie Nelson on the, uh, when we were docked somewhere. And so I just have these memories with my dad of like sitting on the back of the boat in the sunshine and listening to, you know, George on my mind or blue eyes in the rain or angel or any of fallen angel. And I just, I just, it just, it has a lot of really good memories. And I actually met Willie outside of the Oval Office one day um, in 1994. And I, he he was coming out of the Oval Office and I was going in and I saw him and I was like, Mr. Nelson, sir, I know every word to every one of your songs because my father is your biggest fan. And he looked at me and he grabbed my hands and he leans and he goes, that's good. That's real good. And then he walked away. And that was my experience with Willie Nelson. <laughs> um, I'm going to scratch the next question, which is what is, what is your best celebrity impression? Um, <laughs> <laughs> that is my only celebrity impression. Um, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> And now I'm asking this next question and I can't not think of Willie Nelson when I when I asked this. <laughs> Never told that story. To what, what what smell makes you happy? What smell makes me happy? Um I like the smell of like grapefruit, citrus. It's like it just like wakes me up. It's it's a it's a good it's a good smell. I like the smell of like a woody cedar, like my husband's cologne is like that. Mm-hmm. The smell I hate is fresh cut grass. I know that's controversial. I know a lot of people love fresh cut grass, but it just smells like allergies to me. <laughs> I, I, Hey, I don't hate that at all. Really. I, I, I'm kind of a fan of it, but I see where you're coming from. So yeah. I see your eyes watering a little bit, just even thinking yeah. about it. <laughs> Other than fresh cut grass smell, do you have any phobias? I am. I have a, I have a very um, illogical, fear of an irrational fear of whales like i think the whale's going to like eat the entire boat and i'll have to live in its stomach like geppetto <laughs> i know it's completely irrational i know it's never gonna happen i have you know done all kinds of things that are way more dangerous in my life but i have an irrational fear of whales and i was in hawaii once and i was kayaking and these like giant whales came up next to the boat and it was just like gonna die i'm gonna die and then eventually they went away and i will never get back in a kayak again i won't even go on a whale watching boat like, it's like giant boats with like hundreds of people on right, them right. it's I, it's not it's it's not rational i understand but yeah that's that's so, my fear i'm not afraid of death i'm not afraid of public speaking but whales and, and I, I'm, I'm bracing myself for the answer to this last one because otherwise i've been such curveballs <laughs> Outside of anything from the Willie Nelson catalog, what is your go-to karaoke song? Oh, um, uh, um, one way or another, I'm going to find you. I'm going to get you, get you, get you, get you. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) You know why? Because you actually don't have to be able to sing. That's like all about moxie and sass. And guess what? I can't hold a tune in a bucket. So I got to go with the moxie and sass. It's all I got. It's all I got. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, I, I the moxie, the sass, the positivity, the energy, the comedy, the the random answers, you got it all. Like, random. <laughs> <laughs> so I again I am so grateful to you for this time, for this conversation, for these laughs. I will I will order as many penicillins as you want if you ever come to Minneapolis. <laughs> I would love like I, I just see lots of laughing and scotch in the future. Uh, but Absolutely. thank you so much for being who you are. Thank you for doing what you do. Thank you for spreading the positivity that you do. Thank you for Limitless. It is phenomenal. If uh, Not that my blurbs carry any weight, but if you need somebody to blurb your next book or even to give a pre-read, I know what kind of feedback you like now. So, Oh, yeah. I will take you up on that. Thank <laughs> you. And thank you for inviting me on your show. I know, you know, trusting somebody with your audience is a big thing, and I really appreciate that. Well, thank you. So tell everybody where they can find everything located on your website. Sure. So my name's Laura Gassner Odding. It's a lot of name. I'm a lot of woman, but <laughs> I am all my good friends call me LGO. So I am at Hey LGO, H E Y L G O on all the socials. And you can find me at HeyLGO.com as well. And if I went really quickly through the four C's of consonants, calling, connection, contribution, and control, and you're like, wait, wait, I need to know more, you can go. There are four questions you need to ask yourself. You can go to myfourquestions.com and take a quick literally four question quiz, myfourquestions.com. It will tell you exactly how much calling connection contribution and control you have in your life and how much you need in your life and give you some really beautiful PDFs with um, feedback about how to go out and get more of what you want so you can be limitless. That is fantastic. I'll have all the links in the show notes so you can go to any of those. And again, please go get the book. There will be a link to the book as well in the show notes. So go get Limitless now. Don't wait. You've got to pick the book up now because this is just a teaser for how fantastic Laura is. Get into the book and you're going to find the rest. So thank you again, Laura, so much for joining me on the show. And thank you for sharing your wisdom and your positivity and your humor and your moxie and your sass with my audience. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Enrich Your Soul podcast. For more information, including previous episodes, keynote speaker information, television appearances, and more, visit richbracken.com.